This is Glenda Taylor. Welcome to the One and All Wisdom Podcast. In the previous two podcasts in this series, I spoke about social justice by sharing bits of history that I am familiar with, stories that can inform us about how to be with the challenges of our times. I want to share another story today. This story focuses on the fraught process of balancing conflicting needs and perspectives, such as trying to hold together the beloved community, as it has been called, while also implementing radical change in the very social structure of that community. Conflict. We can all feel conflicted, even within ourselves, when we are of two minds about something, for example. We can also find ourselves in conflict with other people over some issue, with members of our own family, or with our regional group, our political or even spiritual organizations. For example, I heard a lifelong Republican talking yesterday on the news about his difficulty in choosing what action to take in the next election, given that he said, He couldn't vote for the current Republican agenda, but he didn't agree with the Democrats, and given the circumstances, there weren't any electable options. When pressed by a reporter, he said, well, one has to do something, so he guessed he'd have to vote Democratic, uncomfortable as that felt. He'd have to do something. The dilemma he described reminded me of a bit of history I am familiar with from research I did years ago. It concerns similar conflicts in the mind and life of a person familiar to all Texans where I live, Sam Houston. Now, if you read a variety of biographies of Houston, as I have done, you'll surely get conflicting opinions on the character of that man. And probably all of those opinions are true to some extent because As his Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer, Marquis James, has said, Houston's temperament was always a curious composition of opposites. (laughs) Sometimes Houston dramatically acted in accordance with strong principles, even to his personal detriment. Other times he could and did bend to make the best of whatever cluster of circumstances he found himself in call that pragmatism, opportunism, or realism, you'll find Texas historians who will agree with you. Take slavery, for example. The family that Sam Houston was born into was a slave-owning family. Houston, as a child, was under the care of a black slave woman. He was accustomed all his life to seeing slavery around him. When he married for the third time at age 47, his wife Margaret would bring two slaves to their marriage with her. And by the time of the Civil War, there were 12 slaves in the household. But Houston seems to have grown up with mixed feelings about slavery, as we shall see. And his reactions to the slaves or the people that he was connected to were very different than most people's at the time, as we shall also see. 
Certainly most people during Houston's adult life considered that he was against the institution of slavery. But Houston, like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson before him, responded in different ways at different times to the given institution of slavery and to the question of how to abolish slavery without creating violence against the freed slaves themselves, for example, and given the prevailing attitudes of the time, that was a real issue, and the question of how to forestall the economic and political chaos for whites and slaves alike when slavery was ended. Houston's views on slavery were likely informed by the fact that as a young teenager, he ran away from home to live with the Indians. And mostly he liked their ways and values better than that of the whites, and he stayed connected with Native American peoples all the rest of his life. And so Houston witnessed among the Native people how they treated the captives or slaves in their control. Some Native Americans treated their captives as slaves, sometimes ruthlessly perhaps. Others treated captives as servants with certain rights and privileges. And other Native Americans treated their captives eventually as family. So Houston was used to a sort of variable rather than clearly defined sort of, <laughs> I guess, sliding scale of ownership, if you will of captives or slaves among the Native Americans. We do know that Houston's Cherokee wife had two slaves when he left her in Oklahoma Territory to go to Texas. But as I said, the way that Houston behaved toward whatever slaves were close around him is notable. We learn how Houston treated the slaves in his possession from one of them, Joshua, who was one of those slaves that Margaret brought to her marriage with Houston. Joshua said that by the time of Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, there were 12 black slaves in the Houston household. And Joshua said that on the day that Houston heard about the Emancipation Proclamation, which was sometime before the end of the Civil War, of course, Houston lined his slaves up and told them that they were free, free to go or stay. Going would have been easier for Houston slaves than for some others, since Houston had seen to it that the slaves were all educated, right along with his own children, which was against the law at the time. And the Houston slaves were allowed to keep any money that they earned, so that they could save it toward when they would be free. Joshua was no ordinary slave either. Under Houston's direction, we're told by a writer of the time, Joshua had become a wheelwright, a carpenter, a blacksmith, an architect, a gardener, and a trusted servant, often traveling with Houston around the country, observing and aiding in Houston's adventures. Even after being freed, most of Houston's slaves stayed with Houston until Houston's death in July of 1863, and a few of them, after that, even traveled with Margaret when she moved later that year. Joshua stayed back in the Huntsville area, taking the last name of Houston. During Reconstruction, Joshua bought land, served as a city councilman and a county commissioner, was a trustee of three different churches over a period of time, and he founded several schools 
and even a college to help educate freed slaves. Joshua was even a member of the Texas delegation to the Republican National Convention in Chicago during that time in Reconstruction. One writer has said that in the violent and chaotic time of Reconstruction, quote, Joshua Houston was a tireless worker for the cause of peace between the two races, something he no doubt had learned in part from Sam Houston, his former owner, close quote. For Sam Houston is clearly and certainly on the record as attempting to keep peace between the races and cultures, Native American and Black and White and Hispanic and North and South. Among Native Americans, the young Houston back in Tennessee was an adopted son of a Cherokee chief and also a protege of Andrew Jackson. As contradictory and conflicting as that was, Houston worked for the rights of the Native Americans, ultimately trying to make the best accommodations possible for the Cherokees, urging them finally to go west ahead of what he knew was coming in what would later be called the Trail of Tears. Later, after Houston left Tennessee and joined the Cherokees in Oklahoma Territory, Houston would be the chosen ambassador to the United States of the Western Cherokee and several other Native American tribes. During his time in Texas, Houston negotiated fairly with the Natives, much to the consternation and opposition of many whites. Likewise, with the many Texans who were of Hispanic origin, Houston tried to protect their rights against many whites who were, at the time, suspicious of all Hispanics after the war, despite the fact that many Hispanics had fought bravely and prominently alongside the white Texans in the war against Mexico. And, as for the blacks, Houston's outspoken opposition to the spread of the institution of slavery almost certainly cost him the strong possibility of becoming President of the United States. Let's unpack that last one, for it sounds the theme of this podcast most clearly. Texas, of course, was first under the control of Spain and then Mexico. And when Americans had first come to Texas, some of them brought slaves with them, despite the fact that Spain and Mexico had already made slavery illegal. That was one reason Texans went to war with Mexico, among other possibly more admirable reasons. So, of course, after the Texans won the war, slavery was made legal again when Texas became a new republic. Sam Houston, who had been the general in charge of the Texas forces in that war, having arrived in Texas shortly before the fight against Mexico. Sam Houston was hailed by the general population as a hero and was made the first president of the Republic of Texas. Over the next ten years, it was mostly Houston who shepherded Texas carefully through challenges from possible attacks by various foreign nations, including the United States, and it was Houston who negotiated carefully with the various Native Americans that were actively hostile toward the Texans, whom they considered invaders in their native country. Houston and the people of the Republic of Texas were generally quite successful during those ten years of being 
a separate republic, economically and militarily, in juggling international alliances, in developing their own navy and establishing successful trade relations, as well as dealing with the tribal people in a variety of ways. However, many of the Anglos in Texas, including Houston, still had a strong attachment to the United States. And so, after some negotiation, Houston managed to get Texas back into the Union, even with the special privileges only the state of Texas enjoys. And when Texas became the 28th state of the United States, Houston, as the new Texas state governor, swore an oath to support the Constitution of the United States. And Houston never forgot that oath, and as it turned out, never betrayed it. But the annexation of Texas into the Union had been debated hotly in Washington over whether Texas should be brought in as a slave or a non-slave state. It mattered a great deal in the uneasy balance between the North and the South in the United States in those days. Texas was brought in as a slave state. Many assumed Houston would support the South's pro-slavery agenda, given that, as I said, he had a few slaves himself. What they didn't likely know, however, was that while in office, as president of the Republic of Texas and later as governor, Houston prohibited slave ships from trafficking in Texas ports and refused to permit payment to bounty hunters of escaped slaves. When Houston became a U.S. Senator from Texas, he was extremely popular everywhere, really, and was closely aligned with powerful national political figures like Jackson and others. Even northern senators admired him, some remarking privately that he was, in his heart, an abolitionist, something the southern senators were keeping their eyes on. But it was widely believed and reported that Houston was on his way to becoming a president of the United States. Likely, he would have been if it had not been for the slavery issue. We can watch Houston's balancing act between practicality and ambition and his own conscience over this issue as time unfolds. In a Senate discussion over what would happen to the newly acquired Oregon country, whether it would be organized as slave or free, Houston introduced what he considered a compromise. Let the people in Oregon decide. When Senator Calhoun, a pro-slavery activist, inquired sarcastically whether or not Houston's amendment was or was not meant to protect Southern gentlemen, Houston responded that it was meant to give protection to the citizens of Oregon. The debate got hotter, and a threat of disunion was made by Calhoun, not for the first or last time. But Oregon Territory was organized as free, non-slave, leading Calhoun and other Southerners to write up a bitter Southern address, claiming that the North was bent upon the ruin of the South. Houston refused to sign it, saying that its tone and wording would, quote, excite the Southern people and drive them further on the road to separation from their Northern friends. 
When Houston was called a traitor to the South by some senators, he answered this charge by giving a speech on the floor of the Senate. He said he was motivated by as patriotic a motive as any gentleman North or South. He said he knew neither North nor South, but only the Union. He was, he said, a Southern man, and he would contend for the just rights of the South, but just as ordinantly would he defend the North when he believed its view to be right. He believed, he said, that on the floor of the Senate he was a representative of the whole American people. The question of slavery continued. The aging Henry Clay laid before the Senate what Houston considered another balance proposal aimed at compromise between all sides on the slavery issue and meant to preserve the union of states which Clay and every other old man present had seen born and grow. Clay said the union should be preserved and could be preserved if each side would pursue a reasonable give and take. Senator Calhoun spoke up disagreeing, saying the state should instead just separate in peace. Sam Houston rose to support Clay and counter Calhoun. Houston spoke with great solemnity about the importance of preserving the Union, referring to some of the comments of the previous senator's speeches about him and his uh, reputation. Houston said, I must say that I am sorry that I cannot offer the prayers of a righteous man that my petition be heard, but I beseech those whose piety will permit them reverentially to offer such petitions, that they will pray for this union, and ask of him who buildeth up and pulleth down nations to unite us. I wish if this union must be dissolved that its ruins may be the monument of my grave. The Clay Compromise passed. Calhoun simmered, and as Houston's biographer Marquis James wrote, the South, especially Texas, resented Houston's word. The country beyond the Sabine, Texas, had sustained itself outside of the Union and did not doubt its capacity to do so again. This had no effect on Sam Houston. When the Southern states held a convention in Nashville, he ridiculed the meeting and the Texas delegates. He refused to acknowledge the leadership of Jefferson Davis, whom he dismissed as, quote, cold as a lizard and ambitious as Lucifer, close quote. When the Kansas-Nebraska bill, which permitted the westward spread of slavery and which Southerners favored, came before the Senate, Houston voted against it. He opposed it for several reasons, in addition to the slavery issue. He felt it would increase the hostility of the North toward the South, and he believed it would lead to civil war, which in fact, all too soon, it did. Houston also opposed the bill because he said it would deprive the Native Americans living in that territory of the rights to their ancestral lands. Houston had lived among those natives. He cared. Houston knew, and said so, that in taking the position he did, 
and by opposing the bill. He would likely lose his Senate seat from Texas as a result, and with it, all chance of the presidency of the United States. He was correct. Yet with his unflagging audacity, Sam Houston, after losing his Senate seat and returning to Texas without benefit of political party, ran again for the position of Texas governor. He stumped the state when at one point he was challenged about his right to speak on the courthouse steps in Brenham, Texas. Houston told the crowd gathered that it was all right. I'm not a taxpayer here, he said. I didn't contribute to buy a single brick or beam in this building and have no right to speak here. But if there is a man within the sound of my voice who desires to hear Sam Houston speak and will follow me hence to yonder hillside under the shade of yon spreading live oak on the soil of Texas, I have a right to speak there because I have watered it with my own blood. He lost that election, but undaunted, he ran again the next time around, running, as he said, as an independent, opposed to Republicans and Democrats alike. He ran as Sam Houston, and he won. So it was that Houston was governor in 1861, when the question finally came to Texas as to whether to secede from the Union and join the Confederacy. By that time, Houston was 70 years old. It was the vote of the Texas legislature and not the popular vote of the citizens that brought Texas into the war on the side of the Confederacy, and Houston objected to this strongly. Before the legislature's votes, public speeches had been made all over Texas by those on both sides of the issue. Stones had been thrown at speakers by angry crowds. Friends of Sam Houston, fearing for his life, urged him not to speak publicly. But he did, and one day he stood up on the balcony of the Tremont Hotel in Galveston, and in the words of a northerner who happened to be present in the crowd and wrote later, quote, There he stood, on the balcony ten feet above the heads of the thousands assembled to hear him, where every eye could scan his magnificent form, six feet and three inches high, straight as an arrow, with deep-set and penetrating eyes, looking out from heavy and thundering brows, crowned with white hair, perfectly erect, and, after a silence, even among that disturbed mob, Houston said, about secession. Quote, Some of you scorn the idea of bloodshed as a result of secession, but let me tell you what is coming. Your fathers and husbands, your sons and brothers, will be herded at the point of a bayonet. You may, after the sacrifice of countless millions of treasure and hundreds of thousands of lives, as a bare possibility win Southern independence, but I doubt it. I tell you that while I believe in the doctrine of states' rights, the North is determined to preserve this union. They are not a fiery, impulsive people as you are, for they live in colder climates. But when they begin to move in a given direction, they move with the steady momentum and perseverance of a mighty avalanche, 
and what I fear is they will overwhelm the South. The Texas legislature voted to secede anyway. The lieutenant governor and the other legislators took the oath to support the Confederacy. Sam Houston refused. The office of governor was declared vacant. So from his home, Houston took pen in hand and wrote to the citizens of Texas. Fellow citizens, in the name of your rights and liberties, which I believe have been trampled upon by the legislature's vote, I refuse to take this oath. In the name of my own conscience and my own manhood, I refuse to take this oath. I love Texas too well to bring strife and bloodshed upon her. Some citizens agreed with Houston, some did not. Texans prepared to go to war. Houston traveled around the state, quietly doing what he could for whatever it was he believed in. One day, a group of young recruits were marching past Houston, who was standing there leaning on his walking stick, and one of them called out, Howdy, old Sam! Houston saluted him and told them that his prayers would follow them, that they must be brave, to trust in God and fear not. Not long after, among those young Texans who went off to battle for the Confederacy was Sam Houston's young son, Sam Jr., who, against his father's ardent advice, went off to fight with the Southern Army. And so, in Tennessee, Young Sam Jr. was wounded in a bloody battle and left for dead. But a Union medical officer coming upon the suffering boy noticed a Bible that had fallen out of the boy's knapsack, and he saw the name Houston with an inscription and the signature of his mother, Margaret Houston. And so the Union officer, remembering Sam Houston's opposition to the spread of slavery, saw to it that young Sam received care and was returned home to Texas. Of course, as soon as Sam Jr. recovered, he went right back to fight again on the side of the Confederacy, while his father continued to travel around Texas, it was said, maneuvering to restore the Republic of Texas. The Ambiguity of History Not long afterwards, Sam Houston died. In his will, he wrote, among other things, quote, To my eldest son, Sam Houston, Jr., I bequeath my sword, worn in the Battle of San Jacinto, never to be drawn, only in defense of the Constitution, the laws and liberties of his country. If any attempt should ever be made to assail one of these, I wish it used in its vindication the vindication of the Constitution that gave liberty and equality to all. That had become Sam Houston's pole star, as it turned out, along with his honor. When he died, his wife Margaret removed from his finger a ring Houston's mother had given him as a young man. She wanted to show it to Houston's children. Engraved on the inside of the ring, which Houston had worn ever since it was given to him, was the word 
honor. I wrote a screenplay once about Houston's interactions with the Cherokee Chief Bowles, and I titled it Honor. I wrote it, oddly enough, because I had a dream in which an old native man instructed me to, quote, make a movie about Chief Bowles and get Robert Redford to help, <laughs> unquote. I laughed when I woke up. Robert Redford, indeed. And who was this Chief Bowles, for heaven's sakes. But the next day, walking through a local university library in San Diego where I lived at the time, there was on a table a book that caught my eye. Its title was Chief Bowles and the Texas Cherokees. Needless to say, I took the book home with me, read about Bowles and Sam Houston, and dutifully set about writing a screenplay. I finished it, but I never knew how to proceed with it past that. And despite the fact that years later in Fort Worth, I was telling a group of people about that dream and about the book and Chief Bowles, and one of the people sitting there that I had just recently met said, Why, for heaven's sakes, my partner's mother wrote that book. What's the chance of that? Nonetheless, the script I wrote is still sitting in a desk drawer at my home, waiting, I guess, for me to deliver on those instructions from the dream to make a movie. And that's one of the reasons that I know a bit about Sam Houston and the difficult challenge of moral obligations. So I've been thinking about you lately, old Sam, and wondering about honor and courage. And where are those that will today defend the Constitution? We still have a long way to go to get to that better place in our society that Houston championed and that others are championing even today. But I think there's reason to persevere, as Houston did, to demonstrate why I think so. In this podcast, let me give the last word to Houston's black freed slave Joshua. After Sam Houston's death, Margaret and the eight children and some of the freed slaves had moved to Independence, Texas. It was during Reconstruction by then, and it was soon clear that Margaret was, as they say, strapped for cash. So one day, Joshua, who'd remained back in Huntsville, appeared at Margaret's residence, riding a mule and he laid a heavy leather pouch at Margaret's feet. It contained $2,000 in United States gold and silver, a fortune then, and it represented Joshua's lifetime savings he had acquired at the extra work Houston had allowed him to do as a slave. Joshua told Margaret that the money was hers. Margaret insisted that Joshua keep it, though, and spend it on education for his children, which he did. He educated not only his children, but as I said, he opened several schools and even a college to educate the children of freed slaves during the rest of his lifetime. That last scene between Joshua and Margaret says more about what is possible to us living today about keeping a place in our heart for grace 
and faith in humanity, even in the worst circumstances, and for the possibility of love's healing and reconciliation when there is conflict of our values or in the outer world. It says more than anything else I might be able to say. This is Glenda Taylor. Thank you for being with me in this One and All Wisdom podcast. And join me often on the web at oneandallwisdom.com.